This episode is brought to you by Audi Canada. The Canadian Medical Association has partnered with Audi Canada to offer CMA members preferred incentive on select vehicle models. Purchase any new qualifying Audi model and receive an additional cash incentive based on the purchase type. Details of the incentive program can be found at audiprofessional.ca. Explore the full line of vehicles available to suit your lifestyle. The Audi driving experience is like no other. The Scotiabank Healthcare Plus Physician Banking Program was co-designed with MD Financial Management for Canada's physicians by combining MD's 50-year history of working exclusively with physician households and Scotiabank's expertise in banking, we're able to provide specialized advice and unique financial solutions tailored to your needs at every stage of your career. We're better together and more committed than ever to Canada's physicians. Find out more about how we can help you and visit www.md.ca slash healthcare plus. Bortonella quintana is a bacteria transmitted via body lice. It is the agent that caused trench fever during World War I, but in modern times, it has been associated with outbreaks among people who experience homelessness. If left untreated, it can also infect the heart and lead to endocarditis, which is what happened to the patients described today. I'm Dr. Neil Chanchlani, Associate Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today I'm talking to Dr. Carl Budman, one of the authors of a CMAJ practice case article about a patient who contracted Bartonella Quintana. I've reached Dr. Carl Budman in Winnipeg. Welcome. Hi, Neil. Thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Can you first tell me a bit about yourself, who you are and where you work, Carl? Of course. I'm a fifth-year resident in a combined infectious disease and medical microbiology program at uh, the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg. Uh, so infectious diseases is the clinical part and medical microbiology is a laboratory specialization. Um, I'm originally from Montreal, Quebec, uh, but I've hopped around quite a bit for my training. And I work uh, at the Health Sciences Center and St. Boniface Hospitals in Winnipeg. And I'm particularly interested in using some of the tools of infectious diseases and medical microbiology to attempt to interrupt cycles of poverty and illness. The catchment area here in, in Winnipeg uh, is unique. There's a quite a large inner city population. Uh, the city is also really well known for um, indigenous scholarship and great uh, activism. Um, and we uh, care for patients in Winnipeg, but also care for many patients who uh, fly down south from northern Manitoba and uh, sometimes uh, Nunavut. You saw multiple patients with Bartonella Quintana. Can you tell me what the first patient you saw? How did he present to your team and what was his relevant history? So the first patient I saw presented acutely with shortness of breath, uh, tachypnea and hypoxemia. And I was only consulted on around day two but he presented to the emergency room also with uh, pleuritic chest pain and was actually quite quickly intubated due to uh, worsening hypoxemia and uh, respiratory uh, distress. Interestingly, this patient uh, had a history of HIV, which he acquired from remote injection drug use. He also had a history of uh, homelessness and was living in and out of shelters for a number of years. But at the time that he presented to hospital, he had uh, lived in supportive housing for many months at that point. When I was called, um, they um, were calling me regarding the 
etiology of his hypoxemia, but also his presentation, because there were some unusual aspects to his presentation, and uh, they wanted some kind of infectious disease uh, guidance in terms of what, what could be going on. How long was he unwell for before he presented? So this is a, a very interesting uh, part. He presented acutely only really with 24 hours of being unwell, um, and then with an acute deterioration of really just minutes. And he had a 24-hour history of uh, shortness of breath and uh, some pleuritic chest pain that deteriorated acutely. Uh, and it was 24 to 48 hours. The history was a little bit vague, but with, within a day or two prior to presentation, I spoke to people who lived with him at the supportive housing uh, unit, and they mentioned that he was, quote unquote, the life of the party at dinner the day before. All of his friends and his uh, roommates mentioned that he was actually apparently close to his baseline, and then things changed acutely prior to presentation. And on day two, when you were consulted, what was the working differential, or what was the thought process behind calling infectious disease or thinking that there was an infectious disease component to his presentation? So prior to calling me, they did a CTPE and a CT abdopelvis. And the CT uh, did show some uh, pulmonary emboli and splenomegaly and uh, splenic infarcts as well as abdominal aneurysms. Um, and a bedside echo showed a large uh, mitral valve vegetation. And so they called me uh, for uh, treatment and guidance on underlying endocarditis. So that was their provisional diagnosis, and they had taken blood cultures first and then prescribed uh, piperacillin and tazobactam um, empirically. And so they called infectious diseases uh, to help with uh, managing the endocarditis. And can you just remind listeners what the key blood work and imaging findings were that were supportive of a diagnosis of endocarditis or bacteremia and what blood work and imaging findings pointed against a diagnosis of bacteremia or endocarditis? Sure. So initially, his complete blood count did show some elements of neutro neutrophilia, which is not specific for endocarditis. And he did have a, an acute kidney injury, which is not specific for endocarditis and may occur with um, many septic presentations. It was really the imaging that pointed to endocarditis uh, with the combination of the echo, both the transthoracic and transesophageal, which was later done, and the CT um, with contrast, which revealed the embolization, uh, both to the lungs and the spleen, um, as well as uh, the uh, endovascular aneurysms of the abdominal aorta, and also some of uh, the uh, renal arteries. So that was really what pointed to a disseminated endovascular uh, infection, such as endocarditis. Blood cultures were initially drawn, and at 48 hours uh, were still negative, even though they were drawn prior to antibiotics. And this was something that uh, led us uh, closer to our diagnosis because it suggested possible culture negative endocarditis. So with most cases of endocarditis, the cultures uh, usually on day you know, two, three, um, sometimes a little bit later, but will be positive. And there is um, a limited number of pathogens that actually cause endocarditis uh, without uh, positive blood cultures routinely. And just before we go on talking about diagnosis surrounding that, what were his inflammatory markers doing at the time of initial presentation? 
they were elevated. I can't recall exactly how elevated they were at the time. And of course, in, these are also nonspecific. So um, he presented clearly unwell. He was intubated quite quickly at the scene. And there is a component of elevated inflammatory markers, which can occur uh, with any septic presentation. What was relatively unique was the size of the vegetation. So the vegetation was over two centimeters on his mitral valve and the acute presentation. So when a, uh, a two, an over two centimeter uh, vegetation doesn't occur overnight, but the collateral suggested that he had really been relatively well until uh, days prior to presentation, at which time he presented with really symptoms of the embolization rather than the infection itself. And were there any diagnoses or pathogens you thought fit with this picture of disseminated infection and micro and macro emboli, as you say? Or was the jury still out in, in what your potential pathogens might have been? In this particular patient, I was suspecting Bartonella quintana. Um, and the reason was uh, because of his history of um, homelessness and the fact that on, his, on exam, I actually noticed a, a fair number of punctate hemorrhagic small lesions on his legs and elsewhere that could be consistent with uh, body lice ectoparasitosis or of body lice uh, infestation. In the context of culture negative endocarditis, so having evidence of endocarditis, a large vegetation, some disseminated endovascular infection seen on imaging, but no positive organism grown within a couple of days. Uh, we ordered uh, testing for Bartonella, both uh, Quintana as well as Bartonella hensile, um, the agent that causes cat scratch disease. We also ordered serology for Coxiella uh, burnettii, which causes Q fever and brucella, which causes brucellosis. However, we were really suspecting Bartonella quintana, which ultimately was the etiology in this case. And what are the differences in clinical presentation that you might get between those two different types of Bartonella? That's a great question, Neil. Both Bartonella hensile and Bartonella quintana uh, can cause endocarditis. However, Bartonella hensile is associated with cat scratch disease which mostly manifests in terms of lymphadenopathy. It can rarely manifest in different ways, especially in an HIV-positive patient, and can uh, cause endocarditis. Now, Bartonella quintana is transmitted by body lice, uh, doesn't usually cause lymphadenopathy, and can cause a systemic disease known as trench fever, and can also cause uh, endovascular complications such as endocarditis. Can you just tell us a little bit more about culture negative um, growth and what the implications are for onwards investigations and treatment when you see culture negative growth? So culture negative endocarditis really by definition means you have evidence of endocarditis, but our routine blood cultures, um, usually three of them, are negative at day five. And the reason why we say day five is because this is the duration that most lab laboratories holds their blood cultures. Now, culture-negative endocarditis has a list of different pathogens. Can you identify those pathogens? Of course you can, but it's not with the routine um, uh, cultures that we do. So they'll be missed on the routine cultures, and that's why we call them culture-negative. If you think about them or suspect them, you can diagnose them in different ways. 
but you have to discuss with the medical microbiologist on call in the laboratory to improve your yield because they will need special growth and incubation conditions and also prolonged uh, incubation time for the most part. If you are suspecting culture negative endocarditis, the initial step is really serology. And even if you, before you identify the pathogen, if you are suspecting it, often people add um, doxycycline or some different antibiotics uh, to target organisms that usually cause uh, culture negative endocarditis, which are slightly different than the organisms that cause culture positive endocarditis. And just remind myself and listeners what those pathogens are. Sure. So the pathogens are uh, Bartonella, so both Quintana and Hensley. There's Coxiella burnettii, the etiology of Q fever. This is associated with uh, pregnant cats and uh, animal, different types of animal exposure. Um, it also can be transmitted downwind from certain farm areas with outbreaks of Q fever, also with uh, sheep and sometimes uh, goats. There's also brucella or brucellosis, uh, which can be associated with culture negative endocarditis. There's actually quite a long uh, list. Uh, there's mycoplasma can cause this, uh, Whipple's disease or trophorema uh, whippoli can cause this, but often the first three are uh, higher up on the list with actually Bartonella quintana being the most, uh, the most common. And of course, it is important though to make sure that it isn't quote unquote false culture negative. So it can appear culture negative if someone was given antibiotics prior to the culture, um, in which case none of these obscure pathogens will be the cause. It might be something run of the mill, such as streptococcus or potentially staph that was just suppressed with prior antibiotics. So by definition, we need, uh, before we invoke a diagnosis of culture negative endocarditis, we need to ensure that the cultures were taken prior to antibiotics. Thank you very much for that nice primer. And I didn't mean to um, test your Latin along the way. <laughs> That's okay. In infectious disease, there's a, there's a lot of Latin. It's, it's clearly not a dead language for us. So just bringing it back to that patient in front of you, you consulted on day two, uh, some blood work, some imaging had been done before you arrived. There were cultures on their way. And, and how did your patient respond to the initial steps of treatment that you'd taken in the first couple of days following this presentation? So in the first couple of days, he was stable, but still was intubated and was still requiring pressors. And uh, his uh, mitral valve showed significant and severe regurgitation. And so he was still in heart failure. He was at that point still on piperacillin, tazobactam, and vancomycin. And the cultures were still negative. Uh, but due to his refractory uh, heart failure and the evidence of embolization to multiple organs, he was taken um, to the operating room. Uh, for cardiovascular surgery and both mitral and aortic valve replacement. So the uh, transesophageal echocardiogram revealed a uh, 25 uh, millimeter by nine millimeter vegetation on the mitral valve with severe regurgitation, as well as smaller vegetations on the aortic valve. What was the role of fever in his case? Did he ever mount a fever? And was that at all telltale for how his trajectory would go? 
So for him, he actually did not mount a significant fever in my recollection. Now, sometimes in people who are acutely unwell with a very large inflammatory response and embolization, having a, low, uh, a fever would not be surprising. But this was not actually a significant component of his, um, uh, of his presentation which is also unusual as most patients with endocarditis will actually present with fever that will last for days or weeks um, if it's subacute or sometimes even months prior to diagnosis, whereas that was not um, a salient feature of his presentation. It's a really interesting point that because we tend to think of endocarditis as, as fever coming in waves, exactly as you say. And after the surgery, how did he do? So he did incredibly well. Uh, I was very impressed with how he did. So uh, he was taken for um, valvular replacement surgery and uh, he was given antibiotics. Uh, at first, this was broad spectrum. I mentioned piperacillin, tazobactam, and vancomycin. This was then switched to ceftriaxone and vancomycin and doxycycline. And then we actually got the etiology. So we, the cultures were still negative. We had tissue from uh, his valve, and we sent that for extra testing. And um, that was able to identify Bartonella uh, quintana. And he actually did uh, recover very well, and um, we were able to follow him up after discharge from hospital. But um, I remember seeing him after extubation off pressors and doing very well within a week after cardiac surgery. I just wanted to clarify one thing regarding the patient's treatment. The guidelines suggest gentamicin and doxycycline for six weeks for uh, Bartonella quintana endocarditis. Because of our patient's acute kidney injury, uh, uh, he only tolerated a couple of days of gentamicin. And then we switched the gentamicin to ceftriaxone and treated him with ceftriaxone and doxycycline for six weeks uh, of the time of cardiovascular surgery. And there is some anecdotal evidence and a number of case uh, reports um, of success with ceftriaxone and doxycycline rather than gentamicin and doxycycline for treating uh, Bartonella uh, Quintana. And he did very well on this regimen. Bartonella Quintana became quite well known during World War I hence its association with trench fever. What do we know about its natural history? Sure. Bartonella uh, Quintana and trench fever was first described in 1916. Um, and at that point, the descriptions really uh, mentioned a five or seven day illness with fever that would come and go. So it would come for around five days, go for five days, and was often associated with sometimes a rash, sometimes splenomegaly or left upper quadrant pain, sometimes shin pain. Those early descriptions actually didn't mention significant endovascular complications. And then there was a very interesting study in 1919, so over a hundred years ago, that uh, employed something called xenodiagnosis. And xeno is X-E-N-O, uh, meaning other, and then diagnosis, meaning, uh, well, obviously diagnosis. And this was a technique where you actually use the vector to amplify the pathogen that you're interested in. 
So what uh, this scientist did, named uh, uh, BM, in 1919, was examine the body lice from patients who had trench fever. And he dissected their guts, and he looked in, uh, in their feces, and actually identified Bartonella quintana. At that time, he actually called it uh, quote-unquote rickettsial bodies. But that was the first description in 1919 that body lice were the uh, the vector of uh, Bartonella quintana. Now, since then, there have been um, many different manifestations outside of uh, wartime conditions. So there have been little outbreaks, and some of them actually not so little, uh, mostly described in the south of France, in Marseille, um, also in some places in the United States, in Seattle, in Baltimore, uh, in San Francisco. And it has also been described in refugee camps throughout the world, mostly in East Africa, um, so in Ethiopia and uh, in Rwanda and Burundi in the 90s surrounding uh, the genocide there. And some studies suggest that in some refugee camps in Ethiopia, it is the number one cause of uh, endocarditis. And can you summarize the key developments in our understanding of Bartonella Quintana from many years ago to what we understand about it now? Have things changed significantly? Um, some things have changed. We've come to uh, recognize uh, that it is relatively common in underhoused uh, populations or populations experiencing homelessness. And that some, some studies show upwards of uh, 10, 15, sometimes 20% positivity of having been exposed to Bartonella, Quintana, we do also know that there is a long-standing chronic bacteremia in these patients. So Bartonella quintana may not cause very much of uh, a, a large inflammatory response, but may actually be in the bloodstream for months on end. Studies out of that group in Marseille have shown that PCR and sometimes culture can be positive for months on end with patients being ambulatory and often um, only mildly symptomatic. So these are uh, changes from the earlier descriptions of trench fever. That said, we, there's still much we don't know about uh, Bartonella quintana, and there's still some um, um, debates about the best ways of, of managing this disease and how common it is and how to actually prevent um, endovascular complications uh, from occurring among people who have uh, serology that shows uh, previous exposure. And what's our understanding of how incident or prevalent Bartonella quintana is nowadays compared to before? In Canada, Bartonella quintana or trench fever is not a reportable or mandatorily reportable disease. So we don't have a denominator to know. So ultimately, we do not know how prevalent this disease is. We do know from some small studies um, in the United States and in France that among people with risk factors, so people who are underhoused or homeless and who have body lice uh, or have had body lice, that it can be quite common. As I mentioned before, approximately uh, one-sixth or one-fifth of patients uh, may have shown uh, previous exposure. There are some issues with uh, serology, of course. And so we don't ultimately know uh, how common it is. And I suspect that among people without any risk factors, it is exceedingly rare. 
but that it is underdiagnosed among patients who do have risk factors, such as uh, homelessness and exposure to body lice um, and uh, some substance use disorders, such as uh, chronic alcoholism. You mentioned that your patient presented with a 24 to 48 hour history of being unwell, including short of breath. You also mentioned a history of body lice. How did that play a role or how should that play a role in diagnosis? And what are some other common signs and symptoms of this for others to be made aware about? That's, that's a great point. Ultimately, we know that this disease is transmitted by body lice. It's transmitted actually from the feces of body lice, which trigger um, an itchy reaction or pruritic reaction. And then people scratch, cause small micro abrasions in the skin, and the bacteria goes into the bloodstream through the feces of the body lice. And the bacteria can survive for a long time, many weeks, in dried feces of body lice on people's clothing. Ultimately, you cannot get uh, uh, Bartonella quintana, as far as we know, without body lice. So either evidence of uh, body lice on exam, either body lice seen in the clothing and the seams of patients who are underhoused, or seeing scabs and lesions and old scars of body lice are quite helpful in making uh, this diagnosis, or at least um, increasing your pretest probability uh, and your spidey sense, so to speak, that this diagnosis may be there. And what would you recommend the next step, once you suspect this condition, what would you recommend the next steps towards reaching a diagnosis should be? Serology is really um, your, your next best step, especially for patients who may be ambulatory and not acutely unwell and for whom you will not get a tissue diagnosis. Um, so the, the first step is getting serology, which is in some ways a screening test. Serology does have some limitations. Uh, there is cross-reactivity between Bartonella quintana, the agent of trench fever, and Bartonella hensilae, the uh, pathogen that causes cat scratch disease. But I would start by serology. And um, if someone does have evidence of endocarditis with either a history of, of chest pain or a new murmur on exam and echo findings of a vegetation or new uh, regurgitation, um, and if they will get surgery, I would send the valve for uh, 16S RNA amplification and PCR. Now, you, prior to antibiotics, if you are suspecting Bartonella quintana, you can also attempt uh, culture by calling uh, your medical microbiology friends in the lab, saying that you suspect the diagnosis for uh, certain reasons, and then they may do certain uh, fancy techniques to improve your yield or their yield of culturing Bartonella, notably keeping the cultures for a long time, up to around six weeks, and sometimes actually employing different techniques to break apart red cells. Because Bartonella quintana lives intra-erythrocytically, so it lives in the uh, erythrocytes, and so the culture is improved if you lyse the erythrocytes, and this can be done either with freezing and thawing or something called lysis centrifugation. But the important part is if you want to try to culture this, 
uh, it's important to talk to your medical microbiology laboratory, and they may also uh, assess for possible PCR. But really the first steps are um, to see if someone has evidence of body lice, might have a clinical syndrome that is consistent with either trench fever or Bartonella quintana endocarditis. Often these patients also have splenomegaly, so if they have you know, uh, left upper quadrant pain or splenomegaly on exam, clinical findings of uh, body lice with scabs on their skin, maybe a new murmur, then I would progress by getting an echo and ordering serology and taking it stepwise from there. And how should clinicians be guided as to when to instigate advanced imaging? Advanced imaging uh, should really be undertaken based on the symptom presentation. So I'm not suggesting that everybody who has body lice get a pan CT with contrast, but I would have a low threshold to ask patients who have body lice whether they have left upper quadrant pain, even if it's dull. I would examine them for any splenomegaly. I'd also listen to their heart and ask them about any symptoms they may have and then use those symptoms to guide for their imaging. And then if there are symptoms, then I would um, undertake either echo or a CT or an ultrasound of the abdomen. In some of our patients, they've had mycotic aneurysms that bled into the brain, and thus they presented um, with decreased level of consciousness and neurologic presentations. And in those cases, obviously MRI, um, and a CT uh, with contrast are indicated to evaluate uh, those neurologic presentations. Over the next few months after you treated your first patient, three more patients with Bartonella Quintana were identified in Winnipeg. Can you tell me a bit about them? Yeah, of course. So when I first diagnosed this case, the patient was doing relatively uh, well and was stable. And then I was called the next week about a, a patient who had a similar presentation. In fact, he had spent time at the exact same inner city shelter as case number one. He also had scars and lesions on his skin from uh, previous uh, body lice. He also had a history of chronic uh, substance use. Uh, in his case, it was chronic alcohol use. And so we ordered the testing. And in some ways, I was baffled when it came back positive. And we repeated the testing multiple times because this uh, pathogen is quite rarely diagnosed. Uh, there's only been three or four cases described in Canada in 20 years. And so to find two cases in two weeks uh, is, is very unusual. And so we repeated all of the testing in this case, including the serology and uh, the molecular test with the 16S PCR, as this second patient also went for cardiovascular surgery, and all of it confirmed Bartonella Quintana. Then around a month later, I was actually at Health Sciences Center, a different hospital, and I saw a patient who uh, presented originally with an intracranial hemorrhage from a mycotic aneurysm. This was a patient in his 30s who had also spent some time at this shelter and had also spent some time in corrections and um, had gone back and forth from uh, a rural community um, that is fly-in in northern Manitoba. And in his case, he, um, after he had an intracranial bleed, echocardiogram did show uh, vegetation also on the mitral valve and with blood cultures that were negative. 
So we sent off the serology, and in his case, his serology was also uh, very high with titers through the roof, greater than one in 8100. Now for him, he could not undergo uh, cardiovascular surgery due to uh, his severe bleed in his brain and the need for anticoagulation if he were to have cardiovascular surgery. And so he was treated with antibiotics, um, ceftriaxone, doxycycline, he was initially treated with vancomycin as well. And his, he did improve from the endocarditis perspective, but has some chronic uh, neurologic deficits from the intracranial hemorrhage. So at that point, I had three cases in two months. And I was talking to people in the department. I presented at rounds about these cases. And then one doctor, an ID doc here said, hey, I also saw a case of, of endocarditis and I never got a diagnosis. Um, I wonder if he also has this disease. And I, we, we looked up this patient, and it turns out he had, one, also um, received meals at the same shelter, came from the same remote community as case number three, and was currently admitted uh, at the time, serendipitously at the time that we were looking for um, some acute psychosis. And so we chatted with him, chatted with his family, and uh, we're able to pursue testing, just serology, and the serology once again confirmed Bartonella with titers that were greater than one in 8100, so really through the roof. Now, in this patient, he had already been treated for his endocarditis, and um, repeat serology uh, months later, and PCR, and repeat um, uh, imaging showed uh, improvement and, in fact, resolution. So we did not reinitiate therapy in him. But in total, this was four patients, all of them men, all between the ages of uh, approximately 25 and 50, all of them uh, with a history of underhousing uh, in some capacity and exposure uh, to shelters uh, who had this disease. And really to hammer home how surprising this was, there have only been three or four cases of this disease reported in Canada uh, since the mid-90s. And then in uh, approximately four months, only in one city in Winnipeg, we diagnosed uh, just as many cases. It's a really fascinating cluster uh, that, you managed to, that you managed to come across, really, uh, and some really interesting risk factors and, 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 and potential associations that you were able to identify. Thanks for being able to write it up for CMHA. Thanks, Neil. Moving forward, what do you want to tell fellow healthcare professionals about Bartonella Quintana? And why did you want to draw attention to this particular case by publishing the, this article? Ultimately, while it is a very interesting case, this cluster of Bartonella Quintana is a tragedy. It really reflects the fact that our inner city populations are living in conditions that are similar to warlike conditions. This is a disease of immense poverty. Uh, this is a disease that is associated with World War I in the trenches. It's associated with refugee camps in uh, surrounding genocide in East Africa. This is a terrible disease. Um, and it's one that really does reflect uh, the very poor conditions that our underhoused population experiences. So one aspect of drawing attention to this disease is the public health advocacy component. Um, uh, hopefully some of these cases translate into uh, eventually into improved outcomes for patients who are underhoused. That includes 
improved access to shelters, less overcrowding at shelters, more funding for shelters, improved access to clean clothing and uh, a, the ability to wash and dry clothing, uh, as well as um, in uh, rural communities, improved access to uh, affordable housing and running water. Two of the, the four cases that we presented had links to the same remote community that still struggles, unfortunately, with uh, running water. So one aspect is really a public health advocacy aspect. Um, and of, unfortunately, in, in Winnipeg and in much of Canada, populations experiencing homelessness are disproportionately shown to be uh, indigenous. And these cases do not in any way mean to perpetuate negative stereotypes of indigeneity. As Dr. Uh, Janet Smiley and Jesse Thistle um, uh, mentioned uh, recently in the CMAJ, really the uh, disproportionate number of Indigenous people experiencing homelessness in Canada relates to ongoing colonial uh, disruptions that have significant effects on patients' uh, health, well-being, and mental health. And three out of our four cases here are Indigenous people. And so this does uh, reflect a really um, a public health uh, need an emergency for increased collaboration, for more resources to really be funneled to improve the care um, of people experiencing homelessness in Canada generally, and uh, in Indigenous people who are uh, unfortunately dis disproportionately affected in this population. Other than the public health advocacy component, um, I'm, I wanted to bring up these cases for the general clinician as well as the infectious disease uh, specialist. Often uh, diseases of poverty are underdiagnosed and they're um, in some ways misunderstood. I've had experiences where uh, infectious disease physicians have either canceled my test for Bartonella or told me that they've worked in inner city infectious disease for 20 years and I've never seen a case. And, um, and it, you know, there's things that we all miss. I, I guess I want to uh, publicize these cases uh, just to encourage people to have an open mind, especially uh, regarding uh, diseases that disproportionately affect people who face significant barriers uh, to care. And to uh, think about Bartonella, Quintana, uh, next time they're, they're treating someone who is underhoused and who may have a disseminated illness that is poorly understood or poorly uh, diagnosed. Some really important messaging there for both public health policymakers as well as clinicians. Uh, thank you for writing that case series for CMAJ and for raising it to our attention. And thanks very much for joining me today, Carl. Oh, it was a pleasure, Neil. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Dr. Carl Budman. To read the article he co-authored, visit cmha.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app and let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Neil Chanchloni, Associate Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.